Can you hear me? Okay. Well, good morning again. Earlier this year on March 9th, Italy's Prime Minister imposed a national quarantine in response to the growing COVID-19 pandemic. And a couple days later, surprising videos started to go viral. Do you remember this? At sunset, Italians would emerge from their apartments and stand on their balconies, and they would begin to sing together, serenading each other along crowded city streets. And videos began to be uploaded and went viral, and I think they captured the world's attention because they were a vivid demonstration of the defiance of the human spirit, which could not be held down despite the COVID quarantine. Well, when the pandemic hit Indonesia, our international church services went completely virtual for several months, and we discovered that the hardest thing to replicate online was the corporate singing. Right? Prayer and preaching were different also. But it was the experience of being surrounded by other believers, all singing together, that I miss the most. Maybe some of you can resonate with that, or maybe some of you at home um, can resonate with that. Well, this morning I want to consider a startling account of singing in the book of Acts. And although there are solid reasons to assume that the earliest Christians sang together whenever they gathered to worship, the book of Acts only mentions singing one time in the entire book. You remember when that is? It's actually a story of singing in a lockdown. So if you have your Bible with you, please open to Acts chapter 16, or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to start reading in Acts 16, verse 16, which immediately follows the account of Paul's preaching outside of Philippi and Lydia's baptism. So Acts 16, starting in verse 16. As we are going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Can you appreciate how shocking verse 25 is? Paul and Silas had just been dragged by an angry, violent mob to the marketplace and unjustly accused. In today's terms, we might say that they were victims of racial injustice. Then they were forcefully stripped naked and beaten. Having been exposed and humiliated publicly, they are thrown into prison. Their clothes return to them likely in tatters. We learn later in the chapter that their wounds needed to be washed. So we can imagine them sitting upright in prison, bloodied and bruised, their oozing wounds pressed into the filthy stone floor of the inner prison. Stocks were often used as instruments of torture and made sleeping very uncomfortable, if not impossible. So there they are, at midnight, exhausted, uncertain about what will happen next, in pain and in pitch-black isolation. I think it would be neither surprising nor sinful if Paul and Silas began to groan or to weep uncontrollably. Yet in this darkest night, an irrepressible song wells up in their hearts and melodies of praise to God begin to float through the prison corridors. The other prisoners, knowing that the inner prison was reserved for the most heinous and the most dangerous of criminals, must have been bewildered. Why in the world would these two men be singing hymns together? What could possibly explain this startling phenomenon? Well, that's the question I will attempt to answer this morning searching for clues from the surrounding context and more widely from different parts of Scripture. It is my hope that the example of Paul and Silas might remind us of truths that we desperately need to hear in the midst of our own trials. As brothers and sisters, we have reasons to sing just as Paul and Silas did. So let's first pray together again. Father, it is so good to be here with your people, singing together, worshiping, chatting, seeing old friends. I'm just so thankful for the corporate worship of your people. And Father, 
as Paul said earlier, we are in desperate need of you, God. We want to behold you as you are in your glory. So would you please, by your grace and mercy, draw us near. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And touch our hearts. Stir up praise within our souls this morning. God, as we consider the example of Paul and Silas from your word. Would you be active among us by your Holy Spirit for your great name's sake? Amen. Okay, again, the main question that I want to ask this morning is why Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God in prison at midnight? And I would suggest that there is a layered answer to this question. In fact, I think there are at least four reasons that could be offered. So I will give you one reason, and then, as it were, we're going to peel back the layers uh, to uncover reasons underneath. And we'll work through various explanations until we arrive at what I consider to be the core reason, uh, last of all. So, why were Paul and Silas singing in prison? The first reason is simply that they sing because singing is an act of heartfelt worship. Later in the book of Acts, Paul speaks of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Acts 27-23. He also boldly testifies before Felix at Caesarea this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. 24.14 So when Acts 16.25 indicates that Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God, it is clear that they are engaging in worship. Paul commands believers to sing when he writes in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's interesting to me that in this passage when he commands the believers to be, be filled with the Spirit, what immediately follows that as evidence, demonstration of the filling of the Spirit? It is singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. True Christian worship comes out of the heart, most often as an overflow of joy or thanksgiving, but potentially as an expression to God of any of our emotions. Jonathan Edwards writes this about singing in his treatise on the religious affections. The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. 
I agree with this assessment. Singing is uniquely designed to move the affections. And that is why God has commanded it. Singing as heartfelt worship is something that we tend to take for granted. But private singing to a God would have been highly unusual, if not unheard of, in the first century Greco-Roman world. As far as I can tell, the singing of hymns in worship of the divine would most often have been confined to religious festivals or would have accompanied the offering of sacrifices in a temple. Spontaneous and private singing of praise would have been shocking indeed. In Indonesia, where approximately 85% of the population is Muslim, singing praise to God is considered strange and even inappropriate. Many Muslims consider music and singing to be haram or forbidden by Islamic law. Go to the next. When Muslims gather to worship, they pray. They recite the Quran, and on Fridays they listen to something similar to sermons. But they never sing. I asked two of our national church planning partners in Indonesia why singing was forbidden. And they didn't really have a good answer. Their best theory was that Muslims avoid singing because they are suspicious of the emotions and their God doesn't seem to be interested in their hearts or in their religious affections. You see in Islam the primary command is to submit to Allah. The word Muslim itself means one who submits. Brothers and sisters there is a world of difference between this vision of devotion and Jesus' command to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus rebukes certain Pharisees and scribes by charging that this people honors me with their lips. But what? But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Our God is seeking our hearts. And that is highly unusual from a historical and a global perspective. So I believe that Paul and Silas were singing at midnight because they felt compelled to worship by giving vent to their hearts, by pouring out their emotions to God. And praying alone in that moment could not express everything that they were feeling. Yet even if true, this still does not fully explain why Luke would stress that they were singing in prison. Right? So let's peel away a layer and consider the second reason. Paul and Silas were singing in prison because 
Singing can be an act of defiance or even spiritual warfare. We need to remind ourselves of the story here and why Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. If you'll look at verse 16 again, Luke tells us that they were met in Philippi by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Right? The phrase that's translated spirit of divination is a good translation, I think, but it could be translated more literally as a python spirit. And it refers to the python that guarded the oracle at Delphi in Greek mythology. So clearly, we are dealing here with an evil spirit, a demon. On our first reading of verse 17, we might assume that this slave girl is helping Paul and his companions by bearing true witness to them and their work. Yet in a polytheistic context, without a strong Jewish community, and remember, apparently there were not enough Jewish men to form a synagogue in Philippi. That's why Paul went outside of the city to the place of prayer. So there's not a strong Jewish community there. So in this polytheistic context, the message of this demon-possessed slave girl was likely to be misunderstood and even misleading. Zeus and other gods were also called the Most High God. And what's translated as uh, the way of salvation could be translated, proclaim to you a way of salvation. And furthermore, Paul probably did not want the gospel to be associated with evil spirits, just as Jesus did not accept the testimony of demons during his earthly ministry. So this understanding makes sense of verse 18. Why Paul would become greatly annoyed. Right? The spirit identified with the Greek god Apollo had been following Paul for many days, I think harassing him and actually opposing his ministry by trying to confuse the people of Philippi as to Paul's identity and the gospel that he was proclaiming. So while Paul might have initially avoided this power encounter, he eventually is so frustrated that he commands the spirit to come out, which triggers the mob and leads Paul to Paul and Silas' imprisonment. So I hope you recognize now that this entire passage is about spiritual warfare. It is about the advance of the gospel into enemy territory. And Paul and Silas were likely doing battle with more than just physical darkness in prison. So how did they respond? By singing. We read in the Old Testament that David used to drive an evil spirit away from Saul by playing on his lyre. And then there is this awesome passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And when he, that is King Jehoshaphat, had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord 
and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. In 2 Chronicles 20, the people of God are conducting literal warfare through the use of song and praise. Yet the people of God throughout the ages have defied both human enemies and the spiritual forces of darkness with singing. Consider the following testimony from a Christian pastor who was jailed for his faith. He says, When we were in prison, we sang almost every day because Christ was alive in us. The communists were very nice to us. They knew we liked to praise God with musical instruments, so they gave every Christian in prison a musical instrument. However, they did not give us violins or mandolins. These were too expensive. Instead, they put chains on our hands and feet. They chained us to add to our grief. Yet we discovered that chains are splendid musical instruments. When we clang them together in rhythm, we could sing, this is the day, click, clank, this is the day, click, clank, which the Lord has made, click, clank, which the Lord has made, click, clank. That was his testimony. The Christian pastor in this prison could have declared with Paul in 2 Timothy 2.9, I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And all the Christians in that communist prison, or even Paul and Silas, if they had known the hymn, could have sung with Martin Luther the defiant words of a mighty fortress is our God. You'll know the words. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen? Those are fighting words, are they not? Singing for the Christian can be an act of faith-filled defiance. So even you, brothers and sisters, when you are facing opposition or hardship, when you feel surrounded on all sides and locked down, raise a hallelujah and take up the weapon of a melody. At this point, we must ask, though, Paul and Silas could have battled in faith by singing to themselves. So why were they singing loud enough to be overheard? This brings us to the third reason that they were singing. Because singing witnesses to the truth. After my daughter Nora read Acts 16 for the first time, 
she came to me and said, Daddy, I like the part when it says that the prisoners were listening. And that is a cool part in the story, isn't it? Consider briefly what happens next. We'll start again in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. Now ask yourself, if all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened, why didn't the other prisoners escape after the earthquake? As the jailer supposed that they would. Well, Luke doesn't tell us the full story, but I would like to think that the other prisoners were so captivated by Paul and Silas's singing that when the earthquake shook the foundations of the prison, they knew that God must be at work. And they were so stunned by what they had heard and experienced that they voluntarily chose to remain in prison. Whatever the reason they did not escape, we know that they were listening to Paul and Silas. And I think it is reasonable to assume that Paul and Silas knew the other prison prisoners could hear them, which means that they were singing partly in order to witness to the truth. And likewise, the songs that we sing today can be a witness to those around us. That is one of the reasons why the lyrics of the songs we sing are so important. It's the lyrics that communicate God's truth. The New Testament scholar Gordon Fee once reportedly said, Show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology. And I think that's right. Good, the great doctrines of our faith have been put to song. And many of the classic Christian hymns and some contemporary praise songs are profound expressions of the truth. And churches must be careful and deliberate in choosing what kinds of songs to sing. And I appreciate Mitch's work this morning putting together the order of our service. It just makes my job really easy to come up and preach after we've been singing such rich songs together. So thank you, Mitch. I often listen to music and songs on YouTube. I imagine that many of you do too. Did you know that approximately 95 out of the top 100 most viewed videos on YouTube are music videos? 95 out of the top 100. Isn't that remarkable? What is it about singing? 
that so captures the human attention. Yet sadly, most of these 95 music videos, some which have been viewed billions of times, most of them are highly sexualized and convey fleshly values. Well, we have the opportunity to be different, brothers and sisters. By the songs we sing and listen to, we can witness to different values in life. We can fill the air with lyrics that are honorable and just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent. So let's use music and our voices to witness to true love and to divine purpose. Amen? Amen. Finally, the last reason why Paul and Silas were singing in prison, the reason I think is at the core, is expressed in a passage that would probably be considered blasphemous by most Muslims in Indonesia. I mean that literally. Zephaniah chapter 3 would probably be considered blasphemous. Let me read it for you. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So why were Paul and Silas singing? Why do we sing? Because our God sings over us. We are loved by the King, brothers and sisters. He is with us. He will save us. He rejoices over us with gladness. He exalts over us with loud singing. I mean, can you believe it? Our God sings. This idea is inconceivable in any other religion. And yet here it is in the Bible. God sings and he sings loudly over us. Hallelujah. Now to return to Acts 16, admittedly, there is no indication in the chapter itself that the love of God was in Paul's mind when he was singing in prison. So why do I say that Paul was singing because God was singing in love over him? Well, when we examine Paul's letters, we observe that Paul's soul could endure severe trials because it was anchored to the love of God that is made known to us in the gospel. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, 
we rejoice in our sufferings. We sing in prison at midnight. And how? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit, you will rejoice in suffering as Paul did, and you will sing. Later in chapter 8, Paul turns positively poetic as he writes about the love of God. You know this passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or a pandemic? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither height, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God that is given to us in Christ Jesus is the deep wellspring of our joy and the core reason why we can sing in the dark. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, brothers and sisters, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen? I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that the book of Acts only mentions singing one time. Did you know that the Gospels also only mention Jesus singing one time? Do you remember when that was? After celebrating the Passover meal that foreshadowed his death, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn before going to the Mount of Olives where Jesus would be arrested. So on the eve of his death on a cross, Scripture tells us that Jesus, God in the flesh, was singing. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus sang on his darkest night, can we not remember his love and raise a hymn of praise even in the worst of our own trials? So let me close by reading the opening paragraph of a news article written on April 1st. There should be a final picture. So this is the news article. A few days into Italy's lockdown, people across the country sang and played music from their balconies as they came together to say, Andre tutto bene, which means everything will be all right. That's what they were singing. Three weeks on, 
the singing has stopped and social unrest is mounting as a significant part of the population, especially in the poorer South, realize that everything is not all right. The songs of this world eventually will all cease. Yet the songs of the redeemed will never end because we know that one day God will make all things right. And in the meantime, we are not whistling in the dark. We're not pretending that everything will be all right. We're not putting on a false front of bravery. No, we are singing in the dark. Our hearts full of worship with faith-filled defiance as an act of witness and knowing that our loving God is singing over us. So remember, brothers and sisters, in the darkest nights, in the most desperate circumstances, no matter what happens politically or economically or in society, we of all people have reasons to sing. Let's pray.